MP, it's our final event of the year. Oh, it's all a bit sad, Bretto, but after four big events for 2018, we are going out with a bang with one more wellness base camp, and the location for this one is regional Victoria, the great town of Bendigo awaits. Oh, and how's this for a lineup, MP? Bendigo will be rocking with the rock star of wellness, Damien Christoph. The art of self-love angel herself, Kim Morrison, hits the stage. As will the natural nutritionist, Steph Lowe. And I'll tell you what, Steph's presentation at the summit on fasting was a showstopper. You'll be there, Bretto. I'll be there too. And Wendy Stewart from Wendy's Way will be there to share her inspirational story, which really did go off at the Wellness Summit earlier this year. It's Saturday, October 27 at the beautiful All Seasons Resort Hotel in Bendigo and tickets are selling fast. Two for one tickets for this one day of inspiration, information and empowerment are available at thewellnessbasecamp.com. That's right, folks. Get your two-for-one tickets at thewellnessbasecamp.com before they run out and then the price goes up. Finish your year of wellness in style at The Wellness Base Camp in Bendigo, Saturday, October 27. Tickets at thewellnessbasecamp.com. The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, we explore intermittent fasting and teach you why fasting is not a dirty word. You will learn the health benefits of fasting, including blood sugar control, digestive ease and fat loss, as well as the amazing anti-aging and longevity benefits that even a fasting mimicking diet can facilitate. We discuss how to set up your meal-to-meal windows and the process to follow to qualify for extended versions of IF, including the very popular 16-8 protocol. We explore the research, but also teach you how to personalize fasting and avoid some of the potential pitfalls of a poorly implemented fasting protocol. 
Hello, listeners. In the past, we've discussed time-restrictive feeding with experts like Sachin Panda. There are others in the space doing plenty of incredible research too, the likes of Volta Longo and Michael Mosley. But today, what Steph and I are going to do is break down some of this research and help you understand the practicalities of intermittent fasting. Let's start at the top, though. So, Steph, can you give us your overview of intermittent fasting and what it is? Yeah, for sure. Firstly, though, I'll just say I'm really excited about this topic today because it's very vogue, as most people would see. You know, it's it's something that we're talking about quite a lot in the health space. Um, there's definitely some some good ways to do it and some ways that I think should be improved. So I really want to break down some of those myths and misconceptions today and hopefully that generates another really great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So intermittent fasting, I might call it IF, just to take out some words today. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's manipulating the time that we actually eat. So most of us have grown up in the space where we've been told to eat every two to three hours, whether that be to, quote, unquote, speed up our metabolism or maybe it was because we were trying to put on muscle mass or we had a, a similar health goal. A lot of it, unfortunately, as most of you guys will know, is funded by industry and the influence that American agriculture had on our food guidelines over five decades ago um, that came you know, definitely across to us in Australia. Um, and, yeah, the, the guidelines are partly so that we buy the muesli bars or the snack bars or the low-fat yogurts and we're perpetually hungry and bound by our appetite. Mm. You know, that obviously creates quite a sugar-burning environment um, and we know that refined carbohydrates are very inflammatory and it's a vicious cycle that certainly doesn't help our health today or our longevity. So the great thing about intermittent fasting is that we start to manipulate both the eating windows, so that's the meal-to-meal time, but definitely our overnight fast, so the time between finishing dinner and breaking the fast the next day or the next time you eat. Mm. Now, there's lots of different versions of this, which we'll go into, um, but I really want us to be aware that you know fasting is not a dirty word. I think a lot of people have this negative connotation attached to us, yeah. which I really want to break down. Um, and as you'll also learn, it's actually not about having nothing. The, the goal is to definitely keep your insulin low um, and create the flow-on effect um, from a physiological point of view, which we'll dive into a bit later on today as well. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that or make that reference to fasting being seen as a dirty word. I even find that um, when people are f first exposed to this notion of fasting that they're scared, they're scared of what it would be like to go more than three hours without eating food. But the wonderful thing is, is that once you can actually start to fast, when you can, when you have exercised that fasting muscle, is that the opposite is true. People actually get this great sense of freedom, freedom because they no longer have to eat every four to five hours. Yeah, definitely. Two, three hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it can be really overwhelming. It's kind of like I always joke about when I first teach someone that it's possible to be full off three meals a day and they look at you like you have a few heads or they basically fall off their chair at the thought of not snacking. Yeah. But it's not until you transform your metabolism that a lot of this happens by default. And I love that as part of the education piece because it's not sitting there for five hours being hungry. It's 
having a really great metabolism that's fat adapted or that's fat burning in nature so you have blood sugar control and that's the gateway to fasting so you know that's exactly what you need to set up first to qualify for taking any version of if further yeah so you've mentioned blood sugar control and that's why at the natural nutritionist we've been using intermittent fasting with our clients for a very long time because it does support that blood sugar control and and in terms supports that fat adaptation process which is which is key for becoming a fat adapted athlete but what are the other benefits? Why is this an area that's now being researched so much and why is it an area that's getting so much attention? Yeah, I mean, there are so many amazing benefits of fasting. If we just stay on the really kind of immediate benefits from a day-to-day point of view, absolutely it's blood sugar control and that's life-changing for someone that's got that perpetual sugar-burning metabolism that is eating every two hours. And, you know, I've been there, so I definitely know what that's like. We've all been there. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, But next, I love it for digestive ease. So, you know, with digestion and, and even the gut health topic, which we talk about a lot on the show, I think we often forget the 101s. We forget the basics when it comes to digestive health. And you know, a lot of that has to do with your food behaviours, like how you eat and how you chew your food and so on. But essentially, it's the constant eating or grazing and the constant digestion that for a lot of people creates the GI or the gastrointestinal distress that we see everywhere. And I just think about it from a cost point of view. So digestion is an expensive process. So it costs the body a lot. And if that function is impaired, then and you're digesting all the time, then that creates a lot of stress in the system. And, you know, simply changing your meal-to-meal windows and setting the body up to experiment with different versions of IF is not a supplement. It doesn't cost anything. And it's a really great way to, for a lot of people, finally calm the body, down-regulate some inflammation and create this digestive ease, which is so important, especially anyone that's got that sort of IBS picture, Mm -hmm. which is a whole other can of worms, but it's, you know, the collection of typical digestive symptoms of which there is no cure because it kind of doesn't really even exist. (laughs) I mean, it's life-changing for some people in terms of the ease it creates, the reduction in bloating that comes about just from eating less. We have to remember it takes four to six hours for food to pass through our stomach. So if we're constantly putting food in there, like every two to three hours, then it's never getting a break. Yeah, that's so true. So you're digesting all day. And the flow and effect of that, particularly towards the back end of the day, is how that interferes with your sleep. So a little bit of a side note, but we do try to recommend eating two to three hours before bed. And a big reason for that is that you don't want to be eating and then jumping into bed with all this energy being directed into the gut and the process of digestion essentially taking your body out of that parasympathetic rest and digest phase. That's definitely something to keep in mind if you are in a bit of a habit of eating dinner too late, myself included. Hmm. But one of the other benefits that we see probably over uh, the medium term, depending on the individual, of course, is that it's amazing for fat loss. So back in the day, we used to have to count calories, eat less, exercise more, and it was a pretty horrific fallacy in the weight loss space. Whereas, Or eat every two hours. Mm. There was a very long period of time for which... We were told that to lose weight, to burn fat, you had to eat every two to three hours. Yeah, exactly. That goes back to that speeding up your metabolism myth from before. But 
setting up the meal to meal windows and training your body to burn fat for fuel is the best way to burn fat. Obviously you burn dietary fat, of course, the food that's going in your mouth, but you have the, the ability to tap into your fat stores, which is burning fat and not storing it. So it's a great way to achieve your desired body comp without having to eat less in most circumstances. So that's you know, that's an awesome and really intelligent way to lose body fat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I really wanted to talk about the term metabolic flexibility as well. Like it's something I do speak about quite a lot, but just for the benefit of the listeners, you know, really, really briefly, obviously if you come off a standard Australian diet um, and you've been eating a lot of refined carbohydrates, you're a sugar burner and that's your only option. So you've essentially got one fuel system to access. When you eat real food, when you become fat adapted, you can access your fat tank, which is an unlimited reserve of energy, but provided you do it properly, um, and I can define what that means shortly, but provided you do it properly, you can still use your muscle glycogen for energy, which is really important for periods of high intensity or when you need that quick energy available. So we use the term flexibility because you've got the dual fuel system. So it's the best of both worlds, right? So you've got this unlimited, like I'm talking 60, 100,000 or more calories available in the fat that you store on board to access for the majority of the time. So I'm talking sleeping, anything sedentary, working, you know, right up until your MAF heart rate or an aerobic type exercise. Um, And then obviously when you go above that for periods of high intensity, you've still got that glycolytic capacity. And as I said, that's the best of both worlds. And that's my aim. That's my aim for all of my, you know, my clients and, and you guys listening today because that is what's life-changing. That is really where it's at and you want your diet and lifestyle to create that for you. Before we get to that state of metabolic flexibility, there's that period of what we call the metabolic grey zone, which perhaps is something worth just touching on for those people listening who are training and are considering introducing some intermittent fasting to their diet. What should they be wary of? Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. So the analogy to think of is a a car, right? So if you're a a sugar burner, you're basically running on petrol and then you've taken the petrol out. So the car's parked on the side of the road empty. What you've got to do is take sort of four to seven days to be able to put in a diesel engine essentially. And then the fat burning, that unlimited supply is essentially a diesel tank. And I've only recently... um, purchase a diesel car and it's life-changing and I'm never having to go to the petrol station so it's a good analogy to work with I think but it is that period of time where the car's parked on the side of the road um, there's really no immediate fuel available or fairly little anyway for for clarity and that is where you can feel definitely quite low in energy or fatigued um, do not expect to be performing well in that time because you're not yet burning fat for fuel and you've taken out your predominant fuel so I definitely either look to you know, do it in the off season or do it when you've got the ability to do a walk, go to yoga, take the intensity down a notch, just get the body adjusting. Now, the experience in the metabolic gray zone is 100% relative to what you were doing prior. So obviously, if you were way, you know, into a standard Australian diet, eating lots of refined carbohydrates, junk food, sugar, it's going to be a detox time as well. So prepare yourself for the worst. And I don't mean to sound negative, but I think it is about appreciating the addictive nature of sugar. It is a drug and we know what happens when you come off a drug. You're going to have the 
the, the detox symptoms as well as all the cravings and, and blood sugar dysregulation that will come with that from a food standpoint. So prepare yourself for the worst, but obviously we can help you if you need guidance in, in what to do during that period of time. Um, I would just say, you know, eat quality food. So your non-starchy veggies, your proteins, your quality fats, um, and small amounts of whole food carbohydrates. And don't worry about volume to start with. Just make that transition to real food, to just eat real food or jerf. Um, and then obviously you can you can dial in a bit further once you feel like you've got the that ability to burn fat for fuel. And some of the, the most initial or immediate um, benefits will be control over your cravings and being able to go for four or more hours between meals. So you might use those two things as your barometers, um, but roughly look for that sort of four to seven days. Yep. Okay. It's important to make to make our listeners aware of that grey zone because we don't want you throwing in the towel two days in because you can't get what you want out of your training session. You know, there's so much for most people, there's a lot to benefit from when it comes to intermittent fasting. So just be aware of that initial hurdle that you might might come up against. Yeah, definitely. And I also think, um, you know, this goes back to something um, Phil Maffetone and I were talking about, you know, with the myth that LCHF doesn't work for me or it makes me mm. slow and lose my top end. And yeah. it's complete BS. You either haven't done it properly or you're expecting yourself to perform at that top end when you haven't even adapted yet. So I think have a bit of a look in the mirror and just make sure that you've ticked all your boxes or you're not rushing because it is a process that takes time, you know, four to seven days initially, then eight to 12 weeks. And then I'm talking like years, like yeah. a couple of years. So you can't rush it. And yeah, how long it takes is relative to lots of factors. Definitely what you were doing, as I mentioned, but genetics and compliance will play a role as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in your chat with Sachin Panda, we're we're going back like a year ago now. He talked about the benefits of intermittent fasting for endurance athletes, but also for um, conditions like breast cancer. Um, have you yourself looked much into the research around that? Yeah, I definitely have. I think there's a, a few mechanisms that we can explore. Um, I just wanted to maybe think about, um, yeah, that's probably where we'll start actually if we think about the mechanisms to explain where where fasting does really help. Um, do you want to talk about telomeres? We definitely do want to talk about that. <laughs> Are we ready to get there? Now? Oh, it's, it's tricky um, because there are so many mechanisms that I want to talk about that sort of set the scene. So maybe we'll, we'll come back to that. But, yeah, I mean, in, there has been some amazing research that Sachin Panda has been involved with that, shows um, the 1311, so a 13-hour fast and 11-hour eating window has been shown to be protective for breast cancer. There's lots of other examples. Um, you know, naturally the anti-inflammatory nature of fasting is really great for a lot of chronic diseases. And then if we think about the metabolic benefits of fasting, we obviously see its application in things like metabolic um, disease, type 2 diabetes or obesity as well. Yeah. So with all of those benefits in mind, it's, it, it is pretty tempting to, to dive straight in the deep end and try and go, you know, straight for your 13-hour overnight fast or even that 16-hour overnight fast that um, a lot of Sachin Panda's research revolves around. So where should people begin? Yeah, I, I really want to reiterate this point because fasting is a muscle, right, which is what I always say. So I, I don't advise the deep end dive. Like I think that... I love the N equals one and the self-experimentation biohacking kind of world, but I think 
it's all about qualifying. And mm-hmm. I have my practitioner hat on right now <laughs> and that's what I do for a living. So <laughs> some people might disagree with me, but I, I just think that if you dive in the deep end and you haven't created blood sugar control, you're going to find it really challenging. And that happens to a lot of people. You know, they're in the keto space or they're in the gut health space and they're all over the research and they think, oh, what a great idea. I'll do a 24-hour fast and they last, you know, three hours. And mm-hmm. then they think it doesn't work for them and the conversation ends. So it's really important that you do qualify or, or strengthen that muscle just like you would in the gym. The number one goal is to get a minimum of four hours between your meals. Now, for my clients that are completely new to this space, I'll give them that guideline of four hours. Mm-hmm. For, the, for most people, that's actually pretty overwhelming. So, you know, we start there and, and we grow. Um, but I also find or I often find that from building your plate properly, four hours is actually a breeze and some people are even doing sort of five or more. It's just they couldn't quite get their head around it initially because of that two hours or vicious cycle that they were on from a standard Australian diet. So, yeah, number one goal is definitely four hours um, in between meals um, and that should happen by default. So, as I mentioned before, it's the, that really positive flow and effect from building your plate, nourishing your body and, and stabilizing your blood sugar, which comes down you know, to, to your macronutrients and things like stress management as well. Um, but just to clarify, when I say macros, I mean carb, fats and proteins. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, next in line is definitely looking at that overnight fast. So as I mentioned before, um, again, there are lots of different versions of fasting, but um, for most people, the, the best place to start is by just literally doing a bit of a calculation. All right, I, I eat dinner at eight and I eat breakfast at seven. So do the maths on that and then see what you can train your body to do by simply either eating dinner earlier, breakfast later, or a combination of the two, depending on what's practical with your schedule. Yeah. And I find a really nice place to start, which is quite doable for most people, is to have that aim of, of 12 hours. Mm. So 12 hours from your last five of one day until your first fight of the next day. Yeah, so eight to eight, which is not unreasonable. You might already be doing that. Exactly, mm. exactly. A lot of people are doing that. A lot of people aren't. A lot of people <laughs> are. Um, but where to from there? There, there are a couple of options. Um, I, again, sort of, I guess, tailor my advice on the individual, clearly, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but what, the next in line would be the, the 13-11. I think I said 11-13 before. So 13-11, just to clarify, is is where Sachin Panda's work is around the circadian rhythm fast. So this one's a little bit different. So just to take a step back, 12-12 is obviously, it could be 6 till 6, it could be 4 till 4, like, I hope you're not eating at 4am, but you get my point. It it can be um, essentially just 12 hours in any kind of variation of that. Whereas the circadian rhythm fast is, you know, definitely the the 13, 11, but we're trying to eat as close to sunset. So finishing dinner as close to sunset and then eating as close to sunrise. So it's a little bit tricky for your schedule. So, mm-hmm. so if you, for me, like working till, you know, seven o'clock some nights, well, it's well and truly dark in Melbourne. So, you know, I don't find that particular version very practical, but you know, when I have kids, I'm, I'm going to be that mum having dinner at five thirty. I can tell you right now. So, um, yeah, have a look at your routine. I like fasting to slot in nicely and to be very practical. I'd never ask you to not have dinner with the family to get in your fast when you can change it or even change the day. Yeah, yeah. And I find that when you're talking practicalities with your clients, putting my practitioner hat on, you do have to think about 
you know, when is your most social meal of the day, for instance. And totally. that's the that's the one that doesn't move. So then you toggle the meal you know, at the at the other end of the bus. For me that's everything. Even when it comes to meals, like I like to reverse engineer the day because most of us have a fixed dinner time. Like I know that when I'm working till seven, I'm having dinner at seven thirty. Like that doesn't change unless Ian's late making dinner like he was last night, darling. Just kidding. Um, but let's say it's seven thirty, then you know I want to work backwards from that to put my meal windows in. So let's say if I am having for five hours, obviously seven thirty, two thirty, you know, you can continue the mass from there. Um, and that's really important because it's not going to happen by itself. Like you really need to have a little structure, nothing crazy, nothing too regimented, but a guideline to think about, is this practical? And we'll dive into some nuances shortly about the, the morning because that needs to be factored in around your training as well, depending yeah. on what time um, you are eating or breaking your fast and what sort of training you've been doing as well. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Mm. And that's why planning is so, so, so key. Yeah. So we've got the 13-hour overnight fast and the 11-hour eating window that we've just talked about. The next progression from there um, really is that 16 and 8. So that 16-hour overnight fast and that 8-hour eating window. Yeah, and this is obviously where most of the research is. You've probably heard us speak about it before. You've probably have even seen it online. It's 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 quite... Well, I think it's everywhere at the moment personally, but I'm obviously very much in this space. Um, so this is where I think the, the benefits are. It's essentially a fasting mimicking diet because you're obviously eating for eight hours, so it's a relatively short eating window, but you're getting this really nice long overnight fast with you know all of the benefits that fasting facilitates. Now, an eight-hour window, if we just break that component down first, is obviously not going to contain three meals, right? Not for most people. No. We just can't fit it in. Even if we've said eat every four hours, that's two meals roughly, right? So one of the natural benefits is some some caloric restriction or restriction of calories. And, you know, I don't promote calorie restriction in a normal standpoint, but I think it's the, you know, let's say you are doing this two days a week, it's this nice natural fluctuation for your body to need less, and again, it happens by default because you've set up your meal-to-meal -meal window and your blood sugar control and you're burning fat. Um, so naturally you're eating less, which can be really nice. It can often train people to realise that they have been overeating. Um, again, digestive ease comes into play. Um, but as I mentioned before, it's the 16-hour window where things need to be planned, right? So if it's 8, then you go, all right, well, 8 to 8 is 12, and then you go 9, 10, 11, 12 again. So it's obviously a midday meal that you'd be essentially eating as the first meal of the day. Now, if you've done a high intensity session in the morning from six till seven, then there's this huge gap where you're not refueling. So I would never recommend that for a high intensity session. And I got asked this question today, actually, what's high intensity? So just for further clarification there, do use Phil Maffetone's 180 formula. So 180 minus your age. So let's say you're 30, 180 minus 30 is 150. So anything over 150 beats per minute class is classed as high intensity. So you need to be refueling within the hour. So you can still do 16A, but it becomes not very practical because dinner is like, you know, early afternoon the, the day before. So my most practical, you know, version of that is to choose the days that you're not doing high intensity training, which is hopefully the majority, right? Yeah. And then if it's aerobic, so under that 150 or under that 180 minus your age heart rate, 
then that that 16-hour fast is um, not going to impact your training recovery. And, you know, it's really important to, to, to acknowledge the number of days to do this because we haven't sort of mentioned that yet. And, you know, 12-12, you could do every day, obviously. So that's the first place to start. But when it comes to 16-8, I really want you to think about your goals. Um, first and foremost, males and females have very different um, responses to to fasting in general. Now, men could technically do this every day, but hopefully you are doing like, let's say two days of high intensity. You may be training in the evening, so there's going to be variations there for you. But essentially you could do it most days of the week, provided you feel like all your other ducks in a row and you're feeling good and you're recovering well and your immune system is well and so on and so forth. There are some things I want you to pay attention to, but for women of childbearing age, so those of us that are having a regular menstrual cycle or those of us that are really trying to balance out our hormones, two to three days is my maximum recommendation. So that's two to three days per week where you'll have your eight-hour eating window and a 16-hour fast. Now, it's really important that you do a sort of a global stock take of all your goals. You know, you're allowed to have a goal that you want to learn how to fast and burn fat and become fat adapted and all the benefits, but you don't want that to contraindicate your goals to be fertile or to balance out your menstrual cycle or to thrive. You know, you've really got to think about the, getting the, the bang for your buck and it's definitely not more is more in lots of cases. Yeah. And hopefully for those people listening, you know, if you are experiencing um, hormonal imbalances or fertility issues, then you're not diving into intermittent fasting on your own and hopefully you're already working with somebody who can talk you through the best way of, of building this into your lifestyle and your plan. Yeah, definitely. And I've shared this before and I don't mind sharing some personal insights. Um, you know, I was doing a lot of fasting, um, say, last year when I was getting ready for my wedding, but now I'm um, moving into a different phase of my life with um, some family planning goals and I'm not really fasting at all. Like, of course, I've got like a nice overnight window, but I'm definitely not doing 16, 8 at all, not once a week. So for me, um, you know, I'm really passionate about making sure that you have that global view of all of your goals because you can still get great meal-to-meal windows, you can still get a nice overnight fast, but you've got to make sure that you aren't sacrificing, say, hormonal goals in this instance. Yeah, yeah. I just want to circle back around to something you talked on before, which is around about planning your um, planning the days in which you're going to be doing intermittent fasting or that extended overnight fast of 16 hours. This is a really important one because you can't afford to just roll into a day of the week and decide that that's going to be your 16-hour fast or the day where you do an eight-hour eating window because you really do need to plan it around your training. So my advice usually is if you have a training plan in place, if you don't, maybe map out a rough week of training um, in your diary, but sit down, look at that training plan and then build your meal timing schedule around that. Yeah, I agree. We put so much time into programs or paying for coaches or whatever that might be, getting into training peaks or Strava or, you know, chatting to your friends about your TSS scores or whatever it is, but we forget to plan our food. And to be honest, it's 80% nutrition and 20% training. So I agree with you completely. I think the the goals come from merging the nutrition with that training program and having them match up so that, you know, we always advise 
the consumption of complex carbohydrates after a high intensity session. So that changes what breakfast you're having or what dinner you're having. And that goes into the meal plan. Like, yeah, it's not going to happen by itself, as I said before. So, you know what they say? Prior planning prevents poor performance. <laughs> oh, I've heard it. Plan to fail, fail to plan, plan to fail. Yeah, lots of P's in there. <laughs> mm. um, I've lost track of where we are. So beyond 16.8. So where do we go from there? Well, yeah, and how do we know if we're ready to move on from there? Yeah, I mean, let's. I think it's good to pause here because... I'm seeing people that are like loving 16.8 that are wanting to move on. Um, but I will just, again, wear my practitioner hat and say that you really want to make sure that you're in a really good place from a health point of view, that you've got your goals in order. So obviously health before fat loss and, and so on. Um, and then think about whether you are a candidate to progress. Now, I actually wanted to talk about our broth fast protocol briefly, if that's okay, because we actually use um, fasting, got circling back to one of the benefits that we spoke about before for digestive ease. Well, n- next to that, in a similar vein, is fasting is so beautiful to completely regenerate your immune system, which we know is m- mostly in the gut. So for people with lots of gut issues, um, for people that are dealing with, say, multiple food intolerances that they can't work out if it's leaky gut, whatever it might look like, a broth fast is genius. Like Kirsty and I have obviously spoken about this on the show before and I'll remember to um, link up that show note, that in the show notes if I, if I can. But otherwise, check out the broth fast that Kirsty Worth and I did. You know, it, it is, I think, next in line because you're not, you're actually eating food, right? So let me just break it down your two to three meals a day are going to be made up of mostly broth and some non-starchy vegetables with potentially a small amount of fat such as ghee. Um, There are different versions of that, of course, but just to give you like a, a broad overview, you are getting some vegetables in, you are getting some fats in, but it's relatively low calorie. You know, I've done the math. It's going to be way less than a thousand calories a day. Um, but it is really good from an immune system point of view. So this taps into one of the longevity benefits of fasting that we haven't got to yet, and that's autophagy, or you might have, some people say autophagy, but autophagy is essentially to visualise what Pac-Man looks like. So Pac-Man goes in and destroys all the dead cells, all the, the negative cells that would otherwise progress to, say, a chronic condition or even some cancers. Um, And it's essentially, as I mentioned earlier, this immune reset. So, you know, you can think of other reasons why it might be helpful from an immune dysfunction point of view, but definitely for a gut health point of view, I love the broth fasting protocol. How long for, though? It would be a typical protocol. It really depends. Most people do three days. And that's, that's my protocol that I've worked on over the last couple of years with my clients in clinic and we've got a sort of a refeed protocol, adding protein back in, what you do after that, which is pretty much just as important as those two to three days. Um, But it is, I think it's the next step because, you know, you're not going straight into a water fast, which I would never recommend. You're getting lots of the benefits. Again, it's that fasting mimicking diet. So it's like the majority of the benefits without having to, you know, be really overwhelmed by a a sort of a deeper version of that. But some amazing gut health benefits as well as, you know, from a cognitive standpoint, like for me, it's it's next level. Like I still include, you know, an MCT coffee in that protocol. Um, it's not compulsory, but obviously the broth fast protocol in itself is really going to ramp up your ketone production, 
which are the acids that are the byproduct of fatty acid oxidation. And they, that's fuel for your brain, right? And that is the answer to increased cognitive function. And I actually, you know, do it on days where I've got clients all day, you know, from nine till seven. And every time I do it, I still get this really nice surprise as to how amazing I feel and, and how switched on I am, even though I know that I've nearly eaten, you know, like, well, that I've barely eaten calories and I haven't got, you know, quote unquote sort of energy, but it shows you what your body's possible of and it really takes things to that next level but you've still got those sort of meal times in there which can break down the day and, and make it a nice more, I guess, a gradual entry yeah. into that next step. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the opposite is also true. You know, if you're not feeling that level of mental acuity and you're not feeling that level of ease during that broth fast, then it's possibly a sign that you've, you've escalated things too quickly. You know, you've jumped from that 16 8 um, fasting protocol to the three-day broth fast, potentially you know, a little ahead of time. Yeah. Can I just say that I agree with you, but I still find the first day hard. Like because, you know, we still eat regularly and hunger is a learned response, right? Mm -hmm. So part of it is breaking down some of those inbuilt habits. So I still find, and you know, I don't eat refined sugar and I, I eat low carb most of the time, <laughs> but, um, you know, I still find day one quite challenging, not in a ravishing way but just in a resetting way and you're eating liquids not solids so naturally it feels different in your tummy yeah. and you're breaking habits from like yeah, old habits every kind of yeah. habit when it comes yeah. to food so for me that was a really good experience i pass it on to all of my clients by day two i'm like loving it and i don't want it to end you know i think that you've got to think about that adaptation phase as well so a lot of the time we get asked that question of um, let's put broth fast to the side if that's okay. Mm -hmm. We got get asked that question of what is going to um, quote unquote break the fast. So if you're aiming for that sixteen hour overnight mm. fast, um, what can you have in that period that is going to help extend that mimic fast? State. Yeah, that's a really good question. So the number one goal to think about is anything that keeps your insulin low. So remember, insulin yeah. is that hormone that's produced when we eat food, but mainly when we eat carbohydrates, which is required for the sugars to be taken up into the cell. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I was just going to say that, you know, it's important to clarify that fasting doesn't mean nothing because a lot of people are like, what do you mean? Nothing. Can I even have water? <laughs> so, all right, let's, let's have this conversation. So absolutely you can have water. I think it's really important to increase your intake of electrolytes, especially when you're new to LCHF or new to fasting. So that you can do with like fresh lemon and a pinch of salt. Yep. Um, you can have broth within the windows. You might even have broth for brekkie, like just a, a bone, like a, sorry, no vegetables, like not a soup per se, but you might even have like, yeah, like either your homemade broth or your tablespoon of best of the bone in your hot water. Um, as I mentioned, I do MCT coffee. So that's mm. coffee with MCT oil and grass-fed butter or ghee. So for me, that's my breakfast and that is within the 16-hour window. So people often find that quite confusing. They're like, but how are you having the MCT coffee? It's got calories, it's food. It's still keeping your insulin very low. You're burning ketones. It's fasting mimicking, remember? We're not talking about nothing. So that works really well for me. Not everyone needs it. Men generally don't need it as much as women and so on. Um, but I find that really works well and then I would eat at, you know, 12 or 1 relative to what time dinner was the night before. Um, so, yes, of course, then you could have MCT oil, you could have coconut oil, um, you can have black coffee, green tea, herbal tea. Um, some people like to sneak in a little bit of, 
All I ask if they can have a little bit of cream or milk in their coffee. I'm not such a fan, but technically if it didn't impact your insulin, it would be the tiniest amount that may or may not work for you. Um, not my sort of, not my preference. Mm. Um, you can have apple cider vinegar. Yeah. What else do you have? I know you make up a few different concoctions. I do. I make a few <laughs> cheeky concoctions. I put a bit of cacao in my, um, in my MCT coffee, um, a little bit of collagen powder in my MCT mm-hmm. coffee, um, a little bit of cinnamon, cinnamon in there. They're the main things yeah. that I have during that. Yeah, nice. Collagen powder, I do with that as well. So, yeah, that's the thing. The list is quite broad, I feel. So that could hopefully help you wrap, wrap your head around that 16 hours. Mm-hmm. So definitely my first advice is have the, have the MCT coffee for quote-unquote breakfast um, and then technically break your fast with a meal that is 16 hours after dinner the night before. Does yeah. that make sense? That's to me. I hope so. <laughs> now, there's some interesting research around the impact that sugar substitutes and sweeteners have on our insulin yeah. response. So um, this, is a, this is something that I get asked about and something that I'm really interested in as to whether um, sugar substitutes and sweeteners have an impact on this, this mimicked fast state. Yeah, I mean, bottom line, I think we should avoid them unless they're in a treat sense outside of a fast environment because they can definitely perpetuate your desire for things that are sweet. There is some reach that research that shows it can um, spike your blood sugar, which is obviously the opposite to what we're trying to achieve here. So I would personally avoid them in all sorts of fasts. Um, and so I wouldn't put that in that, you know, that morning beverage. Um, I don't even love having them sort of in between meals. I think they're a bit of a an addiction, a crutch. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Avoid them if possible. I would use monk fruit sweetener in maybe my keto treats that I have twice a week. Um, and then try to avoid it, you know, any other time. Yeah. Yeah. What about things like supplements that may have sweeteners in there? So supplements that may be sweetened with stevia. For yeah, well, that's a good good point because, like, magnesium powder would have stevia mm. in it. It's sweet as but some electrolytes do. Like, yeah. if you were to use Noon, the brand that we use, like, in clinic and for our endurance athletes. So my personal opinion is to avoid yeah. 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 So therefore the electrolytes that Steph mentioned before, you know, that is lemon juice and salt in water that you yeah. have during that fast. Nature's electrolytes. And and on that, salt is gonna be really important, especially as we move into our longer fast, which we'll which we'll get to. Um you your number one goal is hydration. Like absolutely need to make sure you're staying hydrated, but not just with water. So remember that water needs to get inside the cell and it's salt that takes us across. So if you just drink, it'll go straight through you, especially if you're adding in more. So a pinch of salt like Himalayan pink salt, sea salt, gets the water into the cell, gets you absorbing the water rather than weighing it out. Cool. So there's also this 5-2 diet mm. that... A lot of people actually, I guess this is sort of their exposure or their entryway to um, intermittent fasting because it has been highly publicised, I would say, for a good few years now, the 5 and 2 diet developed by Michael Mosley. Um, How does the structure of that differ to what we've been talking about in terms of that end goal of 16 and 8 on, you you know, potentially two to seven days of the week? Yeah, for sure. I mean, 
as you said, it's been huge in the space. I don't even, I wish I actually know what date, uh, what year Michael Mosley's first book was released, but it's, it's years and years ago before most of us had even heard of IF. So he's definitely a pioneer in the field. And I think he's amazing for the research that he's done in the space, but to define it, five, two is five days of quote unquote normal eating and two days of a caloric restriction. So it's, the general protocol is 500 calories for those two days for a male and 600 calories a day for the for the females. Now, I used to feel differently about this protocol. Like most of the time, the broad protocol I really like, but in context, I, I don't see it work that often. So 500 calories a day is hard for a lot of people, especially if they haven't qualified for fasting. And I hear a lot of people who start with all good intentions until it's three o'clock and everyone in the office is having the cakes or the chalky run or whatever it is. And then pardon the French shit hits the fan. And there's no point. There's no point choosing a protocol where it's hard work. I think fasting can, as I said, as I've been saying all along, it can happen at, by default and as a really positive byproduct of, of changing your physiology. So I would only encourage you to do five, two, if you know you can do those two days properly. And if you promise me, you'll focus on food quality for the rest of the week. Because unfortunately, this quote unquote normal eating for five days is often a license to eat shit, eat more of a standard Australian diet um, and squeeze in foods you wouldn't normally eat because you know you're going to counteract it or you think you're going to counteract it later in the week. So I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing Michael Mosley because I am not. I think his research is fantastic, but I just want you to make sure that it's the right protocol for you and that you qualify yourself first so that you're in the best position to do those two days really well and focus on quality along the five because ultimately food is our nutrition supply, right? So if we're just eating junk, then what are we feeding our body? So we've really got to try and keep that global perspective as well. Yeah. And um, and on this theme and this subject of what we're feeding our body, it's so, so important. You know, you were talking before about autophagy or autophagy, as some people call it, mm-hmm. um, and that idea of that is that Pac-Man, you know, eating up the um, the, the dead cells. Mm. Um, and so that refeed, that meal that we have at the end of the fast is so, so key. Like the quality and the, and the nutrients that we're putting into our body to help regenerating those new cells, when you think about it like that, um, it's crucial. Totally, which is why we talk about food quality all the time. But, yeah, it's really tempting to break your fast with a binge or with mm, a, with a yeah. quote-unquote cheat meal. And, you know, I'm all for balance, don't get me wrong, but I think the, your re-entry to the rest of the week is really, really important because that shapes your blood sugar, right? So if you go out and smash a pizza that's, and, you know, eat lots of refined carbohydrates, well, then you're going to switch off your fat burning and you're going to find it really hard to get back into your normal routine with your long meal-to-meal windows and with your overnight fast and, and so on and so forth. So by all means, you, you know, I want you to have something that you enjoy, but as always, focus on food quality as much as possible. And we've spoken about, you know, how to build your plate quite a lot. And I think that does need to be the goal to phase you out, which is what we've built into our broth fast protocol in terms of how to add protein and what to do next. And, you know, it's going to be individual as always, as nutrition always is. But, um, yeah, definitely keep that on your radar. So, obviously, you're going to focus on what you're doing during the fast, but then what you're doing afterwards as well. What's one of your favourite meals to have at the end of the 16 hour? Not that you're doing it at the moment, but let's wind back. Yeah, yeah. I'm just actually trying to think what I would do, you know, Um, because I am a bit of a creature of habit. But, like, sometimes I would take myself out for brekkie, 
you know, because I have my standard breakfast, breakfast antioxidant smoothie most of the time with, you know, slight variations of that midweek at least. So I might go out and have a nice, you know, my favourite left field cauliflower hash with poached eggs or something a little bit more indulgent that's maybe a slightly larger meal, but then obviously I wouldn't need to eat for way more than five hours. Yeah. That's something I've trained over the years. And in that instance, you know, my, I might just have two meals that day and one's a smoothie, so super light or a smoothie or a soup. Um, but yeah, otherwise really I, cause I've done it for so long now I have my MCT coffee and I just roll into lunch. So it's usually leftovers from the night before. So sometimes it might just be, you know, a chicken curry with cauliflower rice or a pretty standard meal to me, but I love all that kind of food. I'm a bit of a nerd like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, people that don't like cauliflower rice, but I certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I think the, the thing to highlight is that it doesn't have, it's not like this celebratory meal. You know, it's not no. like um, when I was a child, we used to do the 40 hour family. Oh my God, so did I. And you would plan what meal you were going to have at the mm. end of that. You know, unfortunately, when I was a kid, it was like Red Rooster or, um, you know, <laughs> fish and chips or something along those lines. Um, Things have changed a lot over the years. Mm. But, you know, at the end of that fast, it, it doesn't have to be that celebratory meal. I definitely would do it more so after a broth fast because it's three days. It's obviously Very for different. me, feels quite different. And like, I love broth, but by the end, you're like, okay, I'm not going to have another glass of broth. Um, so, you know, Ian and I might go out to our favourite restaurant. So, it, it, you know, we're, I try and have a meal that's not something I've cooked so it's a little bit different. Yeah, so it feels a little bit more indulgent. Maybe some saganaki or something naughty like that. <laughs> yeah. But that's a really important um, conversation. So I'd love you guys to definitely take that on board. Um, I can imagine, though, if I was to do a much longer fast that I'd be like, oh, it's t- even more tempting to celebrate now. So I'd have to put put a lid on it there as well. Mm. Well, look, uh, to be honest, I haven't even attempted the the fasting, unless it's a broth fast, fasting beyond 16 hours really. Mm. Yeah, and I haven't experienced too much of it. I think, um, again, it comes down to what your goal is. Like I, I don't know that we will have time to explore it in great depth in today's episode, so let us know if you definitely want to learn more. But, like, I love the work of Jason Fung from um, – He's got a book called The Fasting Code and The Obesity Code and he does some amazing research. He mostly works with people that have either type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, um, metabolic disease, obesity, and and they are like a medically supervised fast, right? So anything longer than, you know, that what we've been talking about today, I definitely want you to make sure that you're doing it under supervision, mm-hmm. um, especially if we're talking, you know, weeks or fortnights. And you can do it for 30 days, but it needs to be under direct medical supervision and it's called a water fast but um obviously depending on the individual you can fit in a lot of those um things that we were talking about before like the coconut oil or some fats or coffee and and that's you know there are designed protocols with a with a great purpose in mind um but other people like to do it for longevity because that's you know circling back to the conversation around telomeres um just briefly so telomeres are sitting on the end of our chromosome and they sort of of our chromosomes. And essentially when we age, they shorten. And like as a sort of a context, when we're born, we have about 8,000 base pairs, which is a long telomere. Um, Adults are 3,000 and in the elderly, it's 1,500. So it really shortens as we age. That's the aging process. So fasting can actually completely reverse that or it allows us to have long telomeres so it's a great anti-aging strategy and a lot of people mostly men i see um 
like to do longer fasts, whether it is, you know, a longer broth, uh, broth fast or variations of that, because it is amazing from an anti-aging point of view. And we also see it being used to treat some cancers and in childhood epilepsy. So yeah, it's interesting because there are just so many ways it can be set up, so many protocols, so many different benefits for, you know, for health, for longevity, for chronic conditions. Like it's amazing how it can be applied. I just think it's really important that it's individualized. And of course, as we've said 4,000 times, that you're qualified for the version that you're choosing. Yeah. So who are some of those populations or people that perhaps don't qualify to start Mm. attempting you know, those 13, 11 or 16, 8. Yeah, so children, <laughs> children, teenagers. Um, and then we're looking at, I think, women with amenorrhea, so an absence of a menstrual cycle, um, women who are planning to conceive pregnant women. And then I think we're talking about someone with really poor blood sugar control, definitely. I wouldn't put it as a candidate for fasting. Um, what else? They're the most, most of the ones yeah. I would have said. Yeah, I'm sure there are some other um, conditions that we're thinking of. I think if you're ever in doubt that you definitely want to get qualified advice Um, and, yeah, just think about what your steps are, what your entry is to fasting first. Mm. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk on with regards to fasting? Like I think there's there's so much that we could cover Um, Mm. and I'd actually really love to put it out to the audience to perhaps get in touch with us if um, you've got questions around intermittent fasting that we haven't covered today um, mm. or perhaps um, share with us a bit about your own story and your own scenario if you're wondering whether intermittent fasting could be appropriate for you. Yeah, I love that idea. We'll definitely do a part two. Um, just to finish up, I probably want to answer the question, will I be hungry? Because we get that quite a lot, like sort of circling back to what we were saying before about people finding it quite quite overwhelming to be told that they, that, we, that they won't be snacking. You will not be hungry when you're fasting if you are, something's not quite right. Yeah. And that's important to use as a barometer. So I always try and give my clients this barometer. You know, for some people it's their skin, right? If your skin is flaring up, that's a barometer that something's wrong in your gut and, and vice versa. For, for fasting, all right, your barometer is your hunger. So if you're hungry, something's not quite right. You've either you know, not done your entry into fasting properly, you've had too many carbohydrates the day before, you haven't got your blood sugar controlled. For women, one other thing, you know, some people don't find they do it very well towards the end of their menstrual cycle, so before their period is due, so it might be the wrong time of the month for you. There's some nuances, right? But you shouldn't be hungry. So use that as your barometer and try things like the MCT coffee or a little bit of coconut oil. Make sure you're not dehydrated. You know, make sure your metabolism, metabolism is burning fat. So that should make it a really beautiful experience in most instances rather than an unnecessary stress. Yeah. When you do it right, it, it does not have to be hard. Not at all. We talked before about this idea of in that eight-hour eating window, like it's pretty impossible to fit in three meals. But, you know, we don't always prescribe that it has to be two hours in that eight-hour, two meals in that eight-hour window. But that's just a natural side effect because when you're doing it well and right, you, you just don't feel the need to fill up on three meals. Yeah, you're not counting down the hours to eating. So it's, And I say this to all my clients. You're not sitting there saying, oh, my God, it's 9 o'clock. Seth said I can't eat till right, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2. It's not like that at all. It's that you you really are, um, you, you know, the, the hunger is completely different. Like I always say this to my clients as well. Like it's not that ravishing hunger 
walk into the kitchen, inhale the pantry. It's the, oh, yeah, I might eat something now. And if you have to go into a meeting for an hour, nothing will change. And that's what's fascinating about it. You're burning fat, you've got the ketones, you've got the cognitive ability. You're not that person like shaking from low blood sugar, having to go and find a sweet or a cookie or something in the in the, um, in the staff room to survive that one hour. Like it's, it's life-changing. I know we've been saying that all along, but I'd love you guys to try, you know, what feels right for you and, and be really intuitive when you first start experimenting with fasting. You know, reach out to us and let us know how you go. We'd love to hear your experiencing or we'll hear what you are experiencing. Um, and, yes, as Ellie mentioned, please do send in your questions and um, we'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks, Drew. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.